This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the mom room and welcome to 2024. Wow. I'm actually not recording this in 2024. It's actually 2023 right now, but I'm just pretending that I'm in the future when this is released. Today is actually December 28th, so we're getting close. Does anybody have any New Year's resolutions? I know it's like the cool thing to shit all over New Year's resolutions now, but every year I kind of like looking back on the previous year and being like, what are my goals for this year? What are some amazing things that I did in 2023? What do I really want to work on this year? What do I want to be better at and improve? You know, all that kind of stuff. And it's always the same things, like the same things, but in different like forms. So for 2024, I want to cook more meals. I really like dinner time. You guys know this. It stresses me out so much. So cook more meals. Be more prepared when it comes to planning meals and getting groceries and all that kind of stuff. And my husband will obviously be a part of that too. And then working out. I love going to hot yoga. So I don't know why I just don't do it more. I have the time. I can make my own damn schedule. And then getting the house set up. I know we just moved into this house, but it's so bare. I feel like I live in a dorm, like a really beautiful dorm, but like there's nothing on the walls. There's no storage. So looking into planning and making that happen because I spend a lot of time on Pinterest. I'm obsessed with Pinterest. It's so relaxing to me and I have so many good ideas. So I just want to implement them. And if I have to hire people to do that, so be it. Anyways, given that this is January 2nd, you know that the first episode of Insufferable, my new podcast with my sister Liza, aired yesterday. So if you haven't already listened, go and listen. The whole concept of that podcast is like talking about insufferable things at the beginning. You know, what's something that bothered you? Did you have an insufferable interaction with someone? Whatever it might be. And the reason it's insufferable is because usually when we talk about these very nuanced human situations or women situations, you know, maybe one day I'll talk about luteal phase. How about that? Anyways, it just sounds insufferable. And I get that, but I'm owning it. You know, we're owning the insufferableness, if that's a word. So we do that. And then we're going to talk about pop culture, new and old, which is very interesting because we picked some good old pop culture stories to dive into. The one, I will just spill the tea, I will spoil it, but the one that I chose for yesterday's episode was the Kanye interrupting Taylor Swift at the MTV Awards. I've read articles about it, like it just blows my mind looking back on that. And then my sister chose Ashley Simpson's lip syncing debacle at SNL. Also read a bunch about that, like wow, you know? It's fun to go back and talk about these things. And then we pick new pop culture stories. We go over like recipe TV, movie, book recommendations, anything noteworthy that we want to talk about. 
and anything else that comes up, you know, you never know. So please make it your New Year's resolution to be a listener of The Mom Room and Insufferable. I think that's like an admirable plan. I also, as I said, the word admirable kind of figured out that it's a form of the word admire. Anyways, moving on to today's episode. It is January 2nd and today I am speaking with Natasha Daniels. So she put out a book recently called The Grief Rock. And every time I bring up the subject of grief, so many people want to hear more about it. And I know when we had to put Muffin down, our dog, So many people were asking me about how to handle that situation, and I was looking all over the internet for books to read to Milo to kind of explain death. Natasha, okay, not only is she a child therapist specializing in anxiety and OCD, she also lost her husband suddenly. He was healthy, 42 years old, and he passed away suddenly from a blood clot. So her and her children went through the entire grief process. She gets into that experience, what it was like, and how that inspired her to write the children's book, The Grief Rock, to help other families navigate loss. So we talk about that for quite a while, and then we get into anxiety and OCD in children, what that might look like, how it's treated. I had so many questions because I understand anxiety from an adult perspective, but if you asked me how to identify anxiety in a child, I would be like, I don't know. And obviously, they don't have the words to be able to speak to us about it. So it was an interesting conversation. So without further ado, guys, please welcome Natasha Daniels to The Mom Room. All right, Natasha, welcome to The Mom Room. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So my first question for you, I thought you could tell us a little bit about your background because you're primarily an anxiety and OCD therapist for children, which is super interesting in and of itself. So can you give us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in that topic and working in that field? I've always wanted to be a therapist. So I was a middle child, so I was born a therapist in a way. And I actually wanted to help adults, but they kept putting me with kids. And so eventually I was like, okay, I love kids. So I went into working with kids and then I really liked anxiety and OCD because it was solution-focused and there was a problem that could be trained. And so I I went more specifically into that. Is it your newest book? That's The Grief Rock. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and what inspired you to write that book? Because our dog passed away in March. My son was four. And so I was on the search for books to kind of help get us through that and explain it to him in some way. And I found that that area was really lacking. So where did the inspiration come from to write that book? It actually came from our own experience. My husband suddenly passed away three years ago when he was 42 of a blood clot. And grief was never my thing as a child therapist. I didn't really, I found that it was a hard topic to cover because there was no solution. And I was kind of thrown into the trenches and forced to deal with it with my own kids. And I 
was the same way. I couldn't find a book. There are a lot of grief books for kids, but my nine-year-old at the time was just like, nope, nope. And we had literally a pile on my kitchen counter of books and nothing was resonating. It was actually kind of frustrating her because I was kind of depending on a book to help me with this. And eventually I was just like, okay, I need to just tap into my skills and and create my own language for her. And and so I started talking about this rock, this rock that just like crushed our house and it's not going anywhere. And sometimes it's small and like we can manage it. And sometimes it just like balloons out of control and it's a boulder again. And it became our language. And so it wasn't until like maybe eight months later that I was looking back at some journal entries that I had written. And I saw, like I'd written our whole conversation down of how I was explaining grief to her. And the grief fog had lifted a little bit. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this, this could actually be a book. Like it's simple and it just walks people through this. I actually want it to be like a universal like coffee table book. Uh, you know, I thought it could like be a beautiful art book with simple words that could help anyone. But the publisher wanted it to be for kids. They're like, you have to pick an age range. And so that's that's how it evolved. Did you just have the one kid or did you have multiple? No, I have three. So at the time they were 9, 11, and 18. Oh, okay. So a range of ages. Did you find, because there was such a range in their ages, was it really different trying to navigate like helping the nine-year-old versus helping the 18-year-old? Like that must have been difficult for you as the parent who is also grieving. Yeah, it's really hard because you don't really have the capacity to help other people. I mean, you're just so drained and you can barely function. And even the motivation to to go on is really hard. And you're right. I mean, kids grieve in all different ways and the different ages impact that as well. And so my nine-year-old daughter was like very emotional and just would be like explosive or like sobbing. And then my son, who was 11 at the time, was you know, everything's fine and like no emotion and holding it together. And my 18-year-old daughter like turned parental really quick. Like she was really worried about me. And she was like, I had to like tell her, you you don't have to help me parent. You don't have to worry about me. And so it was different for each child, like what we had to deal with. And I imagine as a parent that is going through the loss of your partner and their dad, you wouldn't even have the motivation to try and figure out how to navigate that situation with the children. Like just doing that in and of itself is like you're trying to grieve, but now you're trying to figure out, did you have any supports outside of just like immediate or close family? I didn't. You know, and unfortunately, I'm an introvert, and my husband was an introvert. Well, he was kind of the life of the party at work, but he was introverted outside of work. And we didn't have any family. We don't have family locally. And we didn't have a friend group. Like, it really was just, like, him and I. And so when he was when he died, there was really no support. His work really swooped in and became a support. And I had to learn to accept that support from someone that I didn't know, which was really hard for me because I'm like proud. And I'm always like, I got this, I got this. I would like, I'd be dying and I'd just be like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And so I I wasn't fine. And I realized like I couldn't function without getting some of that support. 
Like eventually you wrote a book about this topic. Were you just doing independent research? Did you reach out to maybe another therapist that works in that area? Where did you gather your information to help you guys? You know, I'm a child therapist, so I, you know, I I get children and developmentally, and I was trained as a general therapist initially. And so it really was from our own experience. It was just knowing what we needed and seeing the gap and where I couldn't get that thing from my child and sitting in a ton of grief groups and hearing, you know, all these other kids and parents going through similar situations that I just wanted to, you know, add that to the universe and be like, okay, here's a concrete book that will validate all the physiological feelings that you're having, those weird reactions that people give you, that feeling of being fine one moment and not again, and and just add that to the world. It was really, compared to all my other books, it was really coming from a personal space. When our dog passed away, I talked a lot on my platforms about navigating that with a four-year-old. And I reached out to, I have friends who are psychologists and It was very interesting to learn the language to use with him. You know, like just all these little like tips were so helpful. But there is like sudden loss, but then there can also be preparing kids for a loss. So do you have advice for parents just in general if they're dealing with young children who have experienced like a sudden loss versus preparing them to lose someone. Yeah, I mean, the idea of life cycle, you know, like the book, Freddie, Freddie the Leaf, you know, like about the life cycle of a leaf, those things can be really helpful. I think it's different when a child loses a parent or a sibling. And one out of 12 kids will experience that before they're 18, which is crazy. And it doubles once they're in their 20s, that number actually doubles. And so I feel like that's a different conversation. And I really feel like my book speaks more to that kind of loss than a loss of a pet or a loss of a grandparent. Because I think there's a lot of books actually out there for just death, you know, a loss of something you love. But when, when there's a crack in your stability, you know, the parent that's supposed to take care of you or your brother who's younger than you, that just shakes a child's understanding of, immortality or permanence on a, on a completely different level. When would you say kids actually start to understand the concept? Because I feel like maybe now he's five now and he talks a lot about it. Like he'll be like, oh, they're dying or I'm going to like make that dead. Or if we saw like a roadkill, he'll like draw my attention to it and it's like he's trying to grasp what it is, but I don't know if he fully understands it. But it, is there an age where they typically understand what death means? You know, I think every kid's different and every family's different as far as what they're talking about spiritually. I think certainly when you kids get more into elementary school, you know, they get the concept of death on a much more concrete level when they're little, and we use a lot of euphemisms, and in video games, things come back to life. In cartoons, things come back to life. So that's really confusing for kids. We talk about they're up in heaven, they're in the sky. Those non-concrete descriptions are confusing for kids because they're very literal at that age. Or, you know, he went to sleep. So 
not using language that is abstract when kids are little is is really important. I remember my friend saying a lot of people say, oh, they were sick. And she was like, it's not really good to say that because then next week when you have a cold and you say that you're sick, you know, she's like, you need to just be like, not harsh, but like blunt and be like, they died. Like, they're gone. And I remember thinking like, yeah, but if he asks like, what happened? What do I say? And she says, you say their lungs stopped working. Like to be very like, like you're saying, not general, not abstract, just his lungs stopped working, like very direct, you know, because it can be scary as a kid. And then somebody is sick or, and then they assume that everyone that has a cold is going to die. And yeah, so it can kind of... Yeah, you have to be really careful. With the wording. Is there anything that besides that people commonly do or say when it comes to working with children who are grieving that maybe we shouldn't? Like, is there like a knee-jerk reaction that parents tend to have in your opinion? And maybe we shouldn't be doing that or saying that. Yeah, I think sometimes we want to make it better. And you see this in the adult world too. And so people will say things like, good thing you're a young widow, you know, you can marry again. Or, you know, your dad is in a better place. Or, you know, your dad's with the angels. And it depends on where you're at spiritually, religiously. But for for some kids, that doesn't, that, that confuses them, especially if they're little. This can be very confusing and you don't know where they are as far as their belief system. But I think just empathizing and saying, you know, I'm so sorry that you're having to go through this, or I, I'm sure this is so hard for you to not have your brother or your dad or your mom. You know, I think sometimes we can't sit with that discomfort. It makes us uncomfortable as a society. And so we want to say something that will cheer them up instead of just validating the fact that, nope, this genuinely sucks and it's okay, you know, and that you feel bad that they have to go through it. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. 
The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right, the quality is unmatched, you are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. I think especially for parents too, it's probably hard to see your children so upset. And even, you know, when they have a tantrum or any kind of negative emotion, I think a knee-jerk reaction is to just stop it. Like, because it's uncomfortable. Like, we as humans just don't want anything to do with the negative emotions. But like you were saying, and I feel like people are starting to talk about that more nowadays, is like, negative emotions are part of the human experience and it's going to happen. And instead of trying to shut it down, like just let it be and validate it. And sometimes you're going to have to sit through, you know, a difficult situation until it's over. But I totally agree with you. People for their own, like, it's like almost like a defense mechanism to be like, oh, like they're in a better place. Like, let's just end it there and move on. Is there anything that stands out to you with regard to how children grieve a loss versus adults? Kids can show behaviors in lots of different ways. And I think sometimes if they're not curled up crying, we think that they're doing okay. But some kids can be hyperactive. My son was really hyperactive. And I was like, what is going on with you? But is that, you know, that energy? Some kids are really angry or aggressive. Some kids actually act like they're totally fine. And especially little kids, like two-year-olds, three-year-olds, you know, they seem like they're fine. Or older kids don't want to create a ripple. They don't want to burden you. They can definitely sense that you're not okay. Looking beyond that surface level is really important. Would you recommend parents seek out a therapist if somebody really close to the child, like a parent or a sibling, has passed? If a parent or a sibling died, I would throw out all sorts of resources. I mean, that's what I do with my kids. I'm like, you know, here's here's a kid's grief therapy support group and here's an individual therapy. And and then my kids would communicate with me. And I think this would be helpful for anyone. Like, what do your kids need? You provided those resources, but what do they need? And quickly, two out of my three were like, I don't want any of that. And that's okay. I'm not going to force it. You know, I'm still going to open up that door and communicate. But they found it, like my oldest, my daughter that was 18 was like, mom, it's just like, it's too depressing. Like that teen group is like, so sad. They always start the group with like why they're there and they 
And that's how all the grief groups started. It was like, you had to tell your story. And it was, it was too hard for her to hear all the like really sad stories. Was that a weekly thing? Like the grief group? Is that what it is? Every other week. Okay. And is it the same people every time or? They're all different depending on where you live. You know, it's just, there's no like unified structure, but it was predominantly the same people, but people could come in to the group. And so there would be new stories, new people almost every time. Okay. And as a therapist now, do you see children who are dealing with grief or are you still just focused on anxiety and OCD? Yeah, I actually, I closed my private practice after my husband died. So that was like almost three years ago, but I had online work already. Like I was providing global resources for parents raising kids with anxiety or OCD, like through courses and membership and podcasts, that kind of stuff. And so I just went to doing that full time and I put this grief book out into the world, but that's really all I wanted to do with grief. <laughs> you know, like that that needed to be in there because I saw that that was a major problem when we were going through it. I don't want to be around grief. <laughs> I know that sounds terrible. No, I can totally see that. So like anxiety is such a huge topic nowadays. I'm sure you are very busy if that is your area of expertise. What are signs? Because as an adult, I understand anxiety, like how I experience it. And usually it's, for me anyways, like physical feelings as opposed to someone would look at me and think like, oh, she's anxious right now. Usually people are shocked to find out that I have anxiety. For parents who have children, what should they be looking out for when it comes to anxiety? Because I'm assuming children don't like have that language to be like, I feel anxious. Yeah, you can start to see it in behaviors first. It's what makes all of us anxious, but it's on another level. And so sometimes anxiety shows up in somatic ways. So you got a stomach ache or a headache or gastrointestinal issues or, you know, you're clammy or you're lightheaded. And so if you start to see a pattern where, you know, my child has stomach aches and there's no medical origin and it's always right before school, you know, like there's a pattern to it, but they're always fine on the weekends, you know, looking for things like that. I think also the inability to do certain things, being anxious to go to school or being anxious to take a test or, you know, you start to see an overwhelm. I know for my kids, so all three of my kids have anxiety and OCD. They have severe reactions to certain things. Every child's different as far as what type of anxiety theme they have. And so they could be, a lot of times I think parents think, well, my child's not really an anxious person. I mean, they'll dive off a cliff, you know, they'll do all these daring things, but they are socially anxious. And so maybe they can't talk to people or they start to feel overwhelmed in a group. And so understanding that anxiety is not, it's multiple flavors, you know, and so it's not like, oh, my child's brave or not brave. It has nothing to do with that. Is that why you got into that area? Because your children experience that or? No, you would think that would make sense, <laughs> but it didn't oh. work out that way. Uh, I actually became an anxiety and OCD child therapist before I had my kids. Well, actually, my daughter, my oldest daughter was like two at the time when I started to specialize in it. And she was just starting to bloom in her sensory and anxiety stuff, but that really wasn't the reason. For most kids, is it something that shows up really early or are there some children who won't experience anxiety? Because I feel like I didn't 
start really getting anxiety till I was in my undergrad. I don't think I had it as a child. So is that common or is it usually parents notice it when they're really young? It can happen at at any point. I mean, there's a a genetic predisposition to anxiety. And so sometimes it's like there's a seed and it just needs to be watered. And sometimes that's an environmental stressor like college, a transition to college. Or sometimes it's like a death. That That's a, another trigger. So there's a stressor, but sometimes you see it early on. Like I, and I know what to look for, so I saw it early on. And sometimes it's stuff like constipation. Because sometimes when I'll talk to parents who are like, she was like fine until she was 16. And then I start to take a history and I'm like, well, there are there were some signs, you know, like a, a hard time with transitions and separation anxiety or difficulty sleeping or, you know, some fears of their health. Like there was some rumbling or perfectionistic and, you know, always worried about grades or how people perceive them. Like these are just different topics, but it can balloon out of control at a certain point for people, whether it's a hormonal trigger, an environmental trigger, a stressor, something like that, that kind of blossoms that genetic seed. Is there major differences in treatment when it comes to treating anxiety? Like what kind of treatment do you usually use with kids like versus adults? I still use the same approach, cognitive behavioral therapy, but in a more kid-friendly way. You know, for anxiety, we talk about you know, the over overprotective lifeguard in your brain, you know, just kind of addressing the amygdala, you know, that your your lifeguard's like on guard and is looking out for any possible issue. And it's it's hitting that emergency alarm bell all the time. And we have to retrain that lifeguard. You know, so using more metaphors and analogies for kids to understand how they have to override that anxious feeling. And and that's really what we do in adult therapy too with CBT, but it's just a cognitive behavioral therapy on a kid level. Is CBT, and it's so funny because I have a PhD in psychology, but I was so focused, like niched on eating disorders, not necessarily like looking at CBT or all the different like treatment modalities and understanding what it is exactly they do. But for anxiety and CBT, like, are you looking at something that someone presents with? Like, oh, I'm really anxious, public speaking. And then it's, is CBT kind of like exposure therapy? Like you're working to still do that thing that you're anxious about? Yeah. And I mean, ERP, exposure response prevention, is, you know, a type of CBT that's effective for anxiety and OCD. But I think with anxiety versus OCD, you're also reframing their thinking. And so I'll give you an example. Like my daughter has metaphobia, the fear of throw up. And so with CBT, we're reframing her thinking of, I'm not going to throw up, I'm not going to throw up, to I may or may not throw up, and I know I can handle it if I throw up. It may not be comfortable, but I can handle it. So she's kind of reframing her thought, but then we're also exposing her to environments and situations that her anxiety says she can't handle. So I can't handle birthday parties because what if I accidentally throw up because I'm anxious and so my stomach hurts and what if I throw up? And so slowly, incrementally moving her towards those parties, whether it is just making it to the parking lot or getting in there or even just driving there and not, not even staying, but some sort of step towards the thing that she's uncomfortable with is kind of an, an exposure behavioral therapy approach. Okay. So you're gradually increasing. That's interesting. The throwing up thing 
Was it something that, like an event that happened that caused the anxiety about that? Or is it just random that that happened? I think a lot of people think that there's like, there's a trauma that causes a lot of like phobic behavior or anxiety themes. And anxiety will just pick whatever flavor really resonates with you. And so a lot of times when I've worked with parents with emetophobia, they'll think, it's this event that happened that caused it. And you can, a lot of times with metaphobia, you can pinpoint what event triggered that and they'll just want trauma approach for that event. But really that was just the water on the seed. It could have been anything else. I mean, how many of us have seen people throw up? How many of us have thrown up in public? That happens, but we all don't develop a metaphobia. For her, she eventually was diagnosed with celiac disease. And so there was an environmental stressor where her stomach hurt all the time and she was nauseous. And then that predisposition to have anxiety, to have an anxiety disorder was ripe and ready. And then it it just kind of hijacked that and was like, and what if you throw up here? And what if you throw up here? And so even when we got her celiac under control and she went on a gluten-free diet, then she was getting stomach aches due to her anxiety and the fear of throwing up. And so at that point, it had kind of just hooked into that. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Do you ever find, because you work with children, that part of your work is also educating the parents Because I can see where, you know, a child having a phobia about something or being very particular 
about certain things, the parents would, because they're not educated in it, be frustrated and just be like, come on, like, let's go, you know? So is part of what you do educating parents on what's happening? Yeah, it's actually the biggest part of what I do because most of my resources, like I have courses on how to teach kids to crush OCD, how to teach kids to crush anxiety. They're all parent-oriented. They're for the parent. My membership community, the AT parenting community, that's parents. I mean, eventually people have asked, can you do like a support group for the kids? And, And so it's grown, but my passion is really teaching parents to help their kids directly. Okay. And with regard to OCD, is that like, do they go hand in hand? If somebody has OCD, do they have anxiety? They are comorbid conditions, but they are separate. I think sometimes people think, and even mental health professionals will say, OCD is just a part of anxiety. And I'm like, they're actually two different things. Like one's coming from the basal ganglia, one's coming from the amygdala. So physiologically, they're different. But if you have anxiety, you're more likely to have OCD. Like there's a a higher risk. And if you have OCD, one, it's anxiety producing. So there's anxiety around the OCD for sure. But it's also very common to have an anxiety disorder separate from OCD. What would OCD look like in a child? So if parents are listening and they're like, oh, I wonder, you know, like my child has certain behaviors that are kind of, you know, my attention is drawn to them to like wonder if something is wrong. What are some things that you commonly see in kids that have OCD or are developing OCD? Yeah, we unfortunately have the stereotype that OCD is just about germs. And so if our kids are overwashing their hands or their body, we we are like, okay, that's probably OCD. Or they're like neurotically straightening stuff out. But it's actually all the other flavors of OCD that get missed, which could be moral or scrupulosity OCD themes where the child thinks they're a bad person. And so their compulsion is to ask the parent, am I a bad person? Or I did this, is that bad? Confessing bad behaviors, I took this from your purse. Like just nonsensical confessions all the time, excessively apologizing, asking for permission for even like ridiculous things. Moral gets missed a lot. There's just right OCD, which often gets missed, which is things have to feel just right or things have to be just right. And so you have kids who are over wiping, writing and rewriting their words, having you repeat back what you say to them until it sounds just right. I mean, just right OCD can really impact all sorts of things. And it gets misdiagnosed. It gets misdiagnosed as ADHD. It gets misdiagnosed as a processing issue. A lot of times it's like a just right OCD issue. So understanding the different flavors of OCD is really helpful. How do people diagnose OCD? Like, is there diagnostic criteria that they have to meet? Like, because it's such a broad range of behaviors that could be occurring, is it difficult to diagnose? I mean, the DSM has its criteria and there's a a side box, which is like a very easy assessment for OCD. And OCD is so out of the box and kind of bizarre compared to other mental health disorders that it becomes really obvious once you, you know, get an assessment or like a cybox and you're starting to check it off. Or even if you learn about OCD, a lot of times people hear on my podcast, I'll talk about OCD and they'll be like, I had no idea that was OCD. Like I thought that was just anxiety. And so once you learn about it, it's like you can't unsee it. So to me, it seems really obvious when someone has OCD. So I think just parents educating themselves is the first step for sure. And then is treatment similar? CBT, like you're working on 
like maybe not doing the compulsions? It's actually really different. And that's what's so scary is that there aren't a lot of mental health professionals that are really trained in OCD specifically. And CBT, like general CBT, actually can make OCD worse. Because like I talked about with my daughter and throwing up, if I, well, that's a bad example because emetophobia you can kind of treat the same way. But let's take moral OCD. So if the intrusive thought is, I'm a bad person, I think I might have hit the dog, but I don't remember hitting the dog. But what if I did? Mom, I think I hit the dog. You know, that kind of stuff. I think I cheated. I'm not sure, but I think I walked past the test and I think I saw the answer. They didn't, but they worry about it. So if I'm in with a CBT therapist who doesn't know that that's scrupulosity, OCD, they might rationalize with it. Well, what makes you think that you cheated? And, you know, do you have feelings about hurting the dog? And that actually grows the intrusive thought because they're like, oh my gosh, I don't know. Why do I have these thoughts? Where someone who is an ERP therapist or an OCD trained therapist, and ERP is a subtype of CBT, wouldn't do that. They would recognize that it's OCD, it's an irrational thought. They would move into like psychoeducational mode of teaching you what OCD is and how it gives you these upsetting thoughts and that the compulsion is to scratch that itch. You know, the OCD wants you to tell your mom and the more you tell your mom and your mom says, oh, it's okay, the bigger the OCD grows. Like the parents, the metaphorical sink. And so we'd work on educating the child on that, educating the parent on that, and then doing exposures to help reduce that discomfort. Totally different. That's wild. So is OCD something that left untreated gets worse and can kind of grow into other behaviors? Like let's say it's a moral thing. Can it grow into other things like if left untreated like over the years? Yeah. OCD is actually a really debilitating disorder. Like much more debilitating than anxiety. And anxiety can be very debilitating, but OCD is, it takes it to another level. People can become housebound or they can become unable to really function. And it it is whack-a-mole. So they might have some moral OCD themes and all of a sudden everything's contaminated and things are emotionally contaminated. And then, and so it grows because those neural pathways are being reinforced when they're doing those compulsions. And so they're, they're like creating a six-lane highway in their brain by the time they're 20-something because they're not learning that when they scratch that itch, they're actually making it worse and helping them understand that. Is OCD common? It's actually really common. It is as common as childhood diabetes or asthma, but we just don't talk about it. Like one out of 200 kids has OCD, but it's missed. It's missed, yeah, and probably diagnosed as something else. And then so it's being left untreated. It can take up to 17 years for people to get diagnosed. Is there medication? With OCD, you're still kind of medicating it similar to anxiety. So SSRIs are like the first line approach for OCD as well, just at higher doses. If people who are listening are struggling with OCD or their child is struggling with OCD or anxiety, like what is the outlook when it comes to treatment? Is it something that is treatable that they will be dealing with long term? Like is it hopeful? Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of effective treatment. The prognosis is really good if people, you know, get appropriate evidence-based care or they learn how to do it themselves. I think even parents can learn how to do this themselves. I don't think it's ever too late to work on OCD, whether you've had it your whole life or your child's had it for a while or you're just starting out. 
it is a chronic condition. And so it's like asthma or diabetes, like it has to be maintained and you have to build those skills long-term. Like my kids are doing pretty good, but they're still having to tap into those skills and and keep those muscles strong to to work on any small weeds that pop up. So in the future, do you see yourself sticking with anxiety, OCD, not touching grief anymore? <laughs> You're like, here's my book. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, the grief rock was was a passion project. I just felt like the universe wanted this out there and it was like paying it forward. Total passion project of just here it is. I'm not looking to create a community of of support for grief. It's not where I sit. I mean, I before my husband died, it was all anxiety and OCD and I'm still back to anxiety and OCD. I have a book coming out in February for like a workbook for kids on OCD. And so it's that that is really my passion for sure. But in the grief rock, you have tips for parents, correct? There is a PDF that you can get, you can download for free through the publisher that will give you, you know, how to use the book in in a way that gets a touch point. And so there's there's parts in that. The book is super simplistic. I actually wanted it to be like an adult coffee table book. And so the words are simple, but I wanted the art, got a great illustrator. And so I wanted the art to be beautiful and I wanted it to like resonate with kids, no matter how old they were about that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's needed because, yeah, I feel like parents find themselves in these situations and the first thing we do is look for a book because something that our children can digest and you know take something away from it so yeah happy that that is out there now where can people find you online and also your courses you can find me at at parenting survival Anywhere, you know, as far as social media, AT Parenting Survival. You can find my courses at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. Perfect. And so the courses are anxiety, OCD primarily? Yeah, they're all anxiety and OCD. There's there's a whole library of them, just like difficult behavior and sleep and some workshops in there, but it's all, all anxiety and OCD related. Awesome. And The Grief Rock, I'm assuming, is available everywhere you can find books. Yep. You can look on Amazon or natashadaniels.com slash grief will take you to Amazon. Well, thank you so much for coming on. These are important topics. So when I saw that you specialized in anxiety and OCD, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to ask her all about this. Yeah. I love talking about that. Uh Uh-huh. No, for sure. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Are you looking for a podcast that'll make you laugh? You came to the wrong place. That's not us. That's not us. Well, it is. We are a husband and wife who chat about raw, real relationship topics. like sex. Like money. Like marriage and kids. But we're not afraid to talk about how your newborn baby probably isn't as cute as you think it is. If you're in need of entertainment while you're driving to work, because that sucks, we can join you in the suckage, kind of like being in your ear. Not physically. So if you want to laugh, come check us out. Come check us out. Brought to you by the Laughing Couple Podcast. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.